everyone, it's Dr. D. This episode of Teacher Prep, we're sitting down with Natalie Pugh, who is a visiting assistant professor at Indiana University School of Education and Urban Teacher Education. She is going to talk to us today about making math relevant. So get ready to take some notes, and we'll start our session with Dr. Pugh. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Teacher Prep. Today we have with us Natalie Pugh, and she's here to talk to us about making math relevant. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what else listeners should know about you? Absolutely. Um, well, I am. I'm Dr. Natalie Odom Pugh. I'm a visiting assistant professor um, from Indiana University uh, School of Education in Indianapolis, which is housed at IUPUI in Indianapolis. And um, I'm currently teaching math methods in the urban teacher education program, as well as the district-based um, alternative certification programs that we have here as well. Um, I am previously uh, I served as a lecturer at Clemson University mm -hmm. and a school administrator, and I was also a middle grades math and social studies teacher um, at the start of my career. Uh, just some wow, you... random background things. Uh, I absolutely love football, reading, and <laughs> I have grown with the appreciation for writing. So um, I came to academia about almost four years ago now, and uh, with the expectation of just teaching full time and and the research and the writing bug bit me, and I've been writing more and more every day, just kind of looking at data, scratching my head, wondering, like, where can we go with this, and having those questions. So I have a lot to share, and I feel like I have a lot to share about um, maths edu mathematics education, STEM, STEAM education, as well as new teacher success. And, um, and more importantly, one that's close to my heart is Black student achievement and or academic achievement in mathematics and just making sure that we can make those uh, strides that we need towards improving um, student achievement for all students in the classroom. Awesome. Wow, you've had such a great background and a lot of different experiences. So we're, we're happy to have you here. And uh, tell us what brought you into the field of education. Okay, well, I graduated from Clemson University. Mm -hmm. uh, with a BS in management with the emphasis in human resources. And I have always loved people. I went to Clemson as an engineer, as most of us did back in 1999. Wow. <laughs> um, we went to Clemson to study engineering. Well, I went to Clemson to study engineering and um, quickly learned I love people. Like, I absolutely mm. love people. And as I was going through the program, I wasn't connecting well um, because the school, it was really content driven. It was very focused on um, that. And so I did, um, there was a, an assessment that we did, a career assessment. And my advisor was like, look, Natalie, this is all pointing towards like education and business. And at that time, if I had switched from engineering to education, I would have lost my um, my, tire, my first two semesters at Clemson. And I'm like, well, I'm not starting over. So I'm like, education will have to wait. You know, like, let me go over to business and see what I can do. Um, and entered the management program. Absolutely loved it. They allowed me to find an emphasis, which human resources spoke to me. And I just love it. I love people. I love learning about people. I love paying attention to people to see why they do the things that they do. Um, it's it, it sounds like more of a psychology, sociology kind of thing, but management just really worked for me. Um, and so I went to business. 
uh, was very successful in the business field. Um, it wasn't difficult. It was it was like easy. It was it was just almost too easy to be work, um, but it wasn't fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And I would go home every night and feel like, okay, well, I just made another family richer, but I haven't done really anything for the community. Right. Uh, I went back to Clemson and I obtained a master's of arts in teaching in middle grades education or a master of art and teaching in middle grades math and social studies. And um, I then went on to study at the University of Central Florida, where I obtained a doctorate in educational leadership. So I found myself marrying my teaching degree and my management degree in ed leadership. Um, and so my first day of teaching was my first day of my doctorate program. And I don't recommend that to anyone. Whoa. <laughs> it was absolutely insane. That's a heavy lift. Experience. <laughs> I learned so much um, from the people in my classes, uh, from my students, about myself. It was really, you know, a reflective time. And it was easier for me because it was just me at that time. And I didn't have kids. I didn't, wasn't married or anything like that. So it was really easy for me to just take a step back and reflect on myself and just kind of develop and grow and mature um, during that time. And it was very beneficial for me. So that's how I got here. Um, I got my doctorate in 2009 and I stayed in the classroom for a solid eight years. I taught for eight years in the classroom before going to administration. So I wasn't in a rush to become an administrator. I really wanted to get good at teaching before I decided to go lead a school. And that was my, that was my um, goal in life. So um, I had a plan for 10, 10, 10 is what I would tell everybody, 10 in the classroom, 10 in administration and 10 in higher ed. But you know, (laughs) life. then, you know, when when you make a plan, God laughs at you. So he, he was chuckling at me when he made some changes for me and I just followed. And, and this is where I am now. Wow. Well, what a great attitude. I love hearing about your journey. Similarly, I also was in the tech field as a tech writer, but just miss out what you were talking about. Wanted to feel like when you came home from work every day that you were making a difference. And I think that resonates with a lot of the teachers out there and a lot of the student teachers that I work with is wanting that feeling like they are having an impact. And what a great attitude and a mindset to have um, as, as a teacher. And in your practice. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. So it's great to hear about you and your journey into education. But here we're talking mm-hmm. about math, specifically yeah. making math relevant. So mm-hmm. my first question is, you know, if I'm making math relevant, what does an engaging math classroom look like? It's funny you ask me that. I remember being asked a specific question while I was being interviewed to go into the assistant principal institute at uh, one of the districts that I was serving. Uh, one of the superintendents asked that same question. She, she asked me, what does engagement look like? And it was a it was a frustrating question because I'm like, oh, as a superintendent, you know, it doesn't look the same. You know, I'm thinking, you know, if you're a superintendent, you know, it won't look the same in every classroom. Right. So how do I answer it? Um and so I, I told her it's where students um, or where teachers actually show that they're enjoying what they're doing, that they mm. enjoy teaching and that the students are enjoying the learning process. And I wouldn't change that response at all. But after those years have passed by, I might add that um, that there's an, a level of ownership of the learning from mm-hmm. the students. I would add that to my statement. Um, to show that that's the engagement. And I know some educators believe that students need to be engaged in some sort of process, like they have to be taking notes or they have to be thinking. Or um, we talk about slant, the, the uh, Teach Like a Champion has the slant where students need to be sitting straight up and they're leaning in and then giving that attention that the um, 
that they the speaker deserves and those kind of things. And so, and we're tracking the speaker and all those things. And and um, and I know that's oftentimes what we look for in a classroom, right. but every teacher doesn't know that method and every teacher doesn't even know how to instill that method. So we can't expect it from everyone if we haven't, if it's not a part of our culture already. Um, so I, you know, that's one of the things that I think that there should be a sense that everyone in there, there's, that there's learning and there's an appreciation for the entire process mm-hmm. um, from the students and the teachers. So in a nutshell, what I would say is like there's no one quality that helps you determine if a classroom is engaged. Sure. Um, or if you if you spend enough time in the classroom, you'll be able to determine if everyone is engaged and if there's a quality instruction being provided. So that's for the observer. Um, but what I really love is when we have those environments that teachers actually build upon, that they have those communities that they spend weeks and weeks and weeks developing so that their students feel like they're part of the classroom and that they're connected um, and that they have an, an environment that demonstrates students' growth and development. Mm-hmm. So you're using your bulletin boards and you're using your wall space so that students see that their mastery is there's a progression in their mastery. So we don't have to put, you know, A, B, C, Ds, and Fs on the board, but we can show a progression or showing that, you know, Johnny started here and now he's here um, in some kind of form chart or something visual. So students can say, okay, I'm growing, I'm growing every day that they're in there. Um, using those wall of fame. I love seeing those when I go in the classroom where if a student has shown improvement or they made an A on a test or anything like that. And you just have stars and students are being celebrated. Those are the type of environments that you know it's a safe place for learning. Students know that they're achieving, that they are being recognized for their achievement. And all of these things are important. So that's what I'm looking for in engaging classrooms, as well as quality teaching and learning um, and, and, and focus from students. But just the overall environment that's keeping everyone, um, holding everyone accountable. And that, that ownership is very important. Right. I love that. The idea of the progression towards mastery Mm -hmm. and getting the kids to own their learning. I think that's so important. So I guess you'd be a fan of the growth mindset in math, Joe Bowler's work out there in Stanford, or where are you at on that? There's lots of pieces of it that I do appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I, I just... Yes, to answer your question, yes, I do. Right. And I, and I do. We use a lot of the articles and stuff in my classes, and, and we do pay close attention to uh, that work as well. And I love that you also talked about all those r- routines and the procedures and how that leads up to the ownership. Because I think, yeah. you know, that's really important. And I think your background, probably in management, made you so effective at that, right? Because <laughs> you know, students yeah, need I'm, to do that. Just knowing that people thrive off of recognition, you know, mm. having that real, realization and bringing that into the classroom. Um, you know, you know, as a teacher, I would be in the circles and I'd hear oh, those kids, those kids, those kids. And after right. a while, I was like, wait, what kids? You know, like, what yeah. are you talking about? I teach the same group and they're phenomenal for me. So it's like, why is it that they come into my classroom and they're one way and they're in your right. classroom in another way? And so as a, the the business side of things, that did make me focus on things like that when I have those questions and, you know, kind of dig a little bit deeper. Um, but it came, it came from the environment, just that Absolutely. level of respect, realizing that they're special. All of my students are special. And, and I had a different mindset. You know, if the student showed up on my roster, yeah. I just felt like this is this is meant to be. Our paths are meant to cross. Therefore, you're going to get the best of me. I expect the best of you. And that really supported our development of our relationships and things um, as we went forward. It, did, it was never a job for me. It was truly just a passion and, and, and a calling for me. Awesome. Yeah. I, I was interested in reading some of the research on mastery orientation and, and how it was it's not something like you were saying, it's not a fixed construct. 
It's something that's created by the teacher. So whether you're up on the boards and, you know, like you were saying, putting people's names with their grades, that would be more of a performance orientation versus showing their growth and their progress and changing their thinking from fixed to growth. That would be more of a mastery orientation. Absolutely. So it's great that you're, you're talking about that and making those connections in, in with mathematics. Give us a story about, you know, a breakthrough moment that you had either as an assistant principal or when you were teaching math in your classroom or even working with your student teachers in the math methods courses. Yeah. Um, well, so now that I have a platform as a teacher educator, I talk about these two significant moments in my mm. teaching career that kind of um, were my pivotal moments that actually showed me that there are ways to reach students. Um, there's there's tons of research, there's tons, tons of data that shows that it can be done. But one thing that I've learned as a teacher educator is that we can give you the tools, but you take your toolbox and you use the tools the best way that you can in your situations. Um, and that part's really important. So uh, I've, I've gotten the same training as most math teachers who are out there, um, mm-hmm. and, and I've, but I've exposed myself to different things. And I've gone to different schools. I've gone to different places. I've gone to different conferences just to continue to learn and grow. So that's one of the things that's, that's kind of guided me in that direction. But I've also allowed my own creativity to speak what I'm teaching um, and not to just feel like I'm, I'm confined to a textbook, that I'm confined to um, the data and the research and the ways that are out there. Like it's truly, I'm in this space right now. I'm going to make the most of this space with the students that I have. Um, so with that said, uh, I was teaching an amazing group of sixth graders in Washington, D.C. Uh, this had to be 2011, 12, maybe. And had, yeah, 2011, 12, that school year. Um, and then I came up with this great idea of just transforming my class in, into a restaurant. And so my husband and I, we were, we didn't have kids then. So we ate out all the time. We were, we lived in, um, the Maryland DC area right there at the line. So we just pick, pick a place and go eat. And while I was there, I'm like, Hey, can I take some menus with me? And they're like, sure. And I tell them what I was planning to do with it. So after a while I had tons of menus. And so mm-hmm. I was trying to think, what am I going to do with this? So I created different scenarios, um, put everything in an envelope. I had those little fake credit cards that come in the mail, had those dropped in there oh, so you could typically get those experiences as <laughs> well. Um, and each, I dressed like a hostess one day, went to the door, and I, and I asked the first group of students, like, how many are in your party? And they're looking at me like, what? Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, how many are in your party? And they were like, okay, three. So I'm taking the first three kids and I sit them at a table for three. And they have menus and um, the envelope says, read me. And they open it up and it kind of just tells them about the scenario. And they're really excited about it. So I go back to the door and I get the next group. And at this time, the kids are just shifting around. They realize, oh, I can sit with my friends today. So let me get with my friends. And so uh, I start taking them all in. And we just go we take off from there. And so mm-hmm. the kids are in those scenarios, they're problem solving and there's different ones. There's a business one where there's a black card in, inside and they're like, okay, you have unlimited balance kind of explain it, explaining them to that financial piece. Um, and you're having a business meeting. And so there was a different kind of restaurant, whatever scenario matched the, the menu of the restaurant that I had. And so they actually had to pick out their meals Um calculate everybody had to it wasn't one person but everybody had to calculate the total after people picked out whatever they wanted to eat um they had to do the tax the tip the total all of it and um they submitted all their work in afterwards and so it, like it was different scenarios we had the business one we had um 
buffet style for a family and they actually had cash in there and they were trying to make sure they stayed within their budget. Um, wow. And those kind of, it was just a lot of different things happening at once, just different scenarios. And so they turned in their work that night. And I remember I was really excited about seeing the outcome. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a mess. But they were focused. They didn't bother me for anything. I'm literally going up to their tables like, can I help you with anything? They're like, no, we're good. And so it was, it was one of those days. It's like every day is like, not a few, not a few, not a few. And then today is like, we don't need you. We got this. Um, and so I take the work home and I'm grading their papers. And it's, you know, those are the days I the idea came because the kids were forgetting to line up their decimals when they're adding or to move the decimal to multiply, um, to turn the percentage into a decimal so that they could multiply to figure out what the tax or tip was going to be. Um, they were making those little small errors, but this particular day, there were no errors. They were mm. working together. And when one student was making a mistake, another one was supporting them. And it was just, it just changed the complete dynamic of the classroom. And so it was like one of those breakthrough moments for myself, but also for my students. And one of my colleagues that worked in the school with me uh, while I was there, her, I taught her nephew that year. And he's a senior, he was a senior in high school and he told her about the restaurant day. You know, he's like six years later, he's talking to her about a day in my class. And I'm like, that's what we do it for. Like those right. are the moments that you want students to hang on to because they are a lot of work. But the, the amount of math that happened that day and the amount of, you know, mastery that happened that day can go beyond anything, you know, that's out there research wise. You know, you can you can call it what you want. You can name it whatever you want. But if you focus on the actuality of what happened. Um, that's what, that's what we really need to look at. Like, you know, how can we continue this? How can this change, you know, the idea of what math class should look like for other teachers and so that they can have these same, you know, breakthrough moments. Um, and if I have time, I want to tell you about a second one. Uh, I love it. How you, I mean, cause you're explicitly teaching those real life problem solving skills and, uh, highly Mm -hmm. embedded contacts. So that the students are, when we talked about engaged, but they're also motivated to learn and you're building on their funds of knowledge because they've most likely had experiences going out to eat at different kinds of restaurants, whether it's, okay, we got 20 minutes, let's go over here to the taqueria or, you know, we want to go out for a really nice dinner tonight to celebrate, you know, my birthday or what have you. Um, But those are great because then when we talk about problem solving with our students and asking them about does this answer make sense mm-hmm. you know they're able to make that connection much more so than they're solving some problem that's totally disconnected and not relevant to their lives absolutely and that whole phase that happens so typically the waitress will come hand the parent the or the adult the situation the folder and they have the bill and the parent flies the card like all of that is happening and the kids just oblivious to what's happening but now we open basically opened up the little black book and they're part of that situation now mm-hmm. and they realize oh, this is what's going on the comment was oh i didn't know what a subtotal was until now you know like they'd right. seen the word subtotal but that didn't make sense until they were adding everything up um and making those connections and i think that part was very um eye-opening for myself as well and i, I really agree with your comment there it's just it's one of those things where um i, I wanted my students to experience and, and have a relevant experience where they live it every single day, but maybe they miss the math because it's the adult side of things or, you know, they don't even focus on it. Um, so it's it's really, you know, one of those things. And I've done it maybe six or seven times since then. Um, I actually do it in my, my math methods class as well. So, oh, that's so much know, fun. Those are for people to experience so that they can see that we can bring this into the classroom. It doesn't have to be like the math class that we had when we went through school. It can be different. Absolutely. But, you know, it probably takes a lot of prep. 
and a lot of forethought to make that all come together as you described. So tell us what what would you what are your recommendations for making those types of experiences experiences happen in the math classroom? Oh, my recommendations is really just knowing your students, mm-hmm. know who you have, um, build that classroom management space where or the, have the the classroom management style or skills so that you are able to inform your students of what it is that you're going to do mm-hmm. um, and let them know of your expectations and that you they have to meet those expectations. Um, I've, I was in the classroom for eight years and I can't think of a day where behavior kept me from doing something that would benefit all of my students. You know, it was one of those where I had expectations. I laid them out there on the line and, and told my students what it was. And, and, and they knew we had a relationship as well. They knew and that this whole thing of let me do my job and I'll make you better was actually a comment that we said, you know, like if you wanted to get better at this, allow me to do my job and do the work that I'm here um, to get paid to do and we can make this work. And it was to the point where, you know, it was plainly said, but the kids kind of got it. They just realized like, yeah, she really wants to do it. So let's let her do it. Um, And so those are days where, you know, you just got to pay attention to your, your climate and you're in, in, in the climate that you've created in your classroom and, and the students that you have and don't think that they can't do it because they have maybe a behavior issue in your friend's classroom across, across the hall or anything like that. Don't think for a minute that the students right. can't do it because when you rise, allow them to rise up to the occasion, they will always um, surprise you if, if you're if you're ready for it. Um, and that's I think that goes to it as well. The preparation I talk about that all the time in the classroom. It's that preparation is the key. And um, I believe just just about every uh, math researcher that I follow that's a lot of the. Uh, emphasis that they have, no matter what their, their focus is, it goes always goes back to the preparation of the instruction and, and knowing your, your the people that Absolutely. you're serving. Absolutely. And you also talked about teacher expectations, which there's a significant amount of research, I think, by Linda Darling-Hammond about the best predictor of student success is the teacher's expectation of them. So if you yeah. hold your students with high expectations, and this is regardless of, you know, whether they have an IEP or you know, they come from impoverished backgrounds. Those high expectations is what will predict students' achievement and their positive outcomes. So I'm so glad you brought that up because I think we can't hear it enough and we need to hear it more and we need to not listen to all those naysayers um, because, yeah, it does. It's a, the culture is so important, the, cu- the classroom, not just the classroom culture, but the school culture as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know that first being a principal. Wow. That's that's another podcast in itself. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us some specific you talked about? It sounded like, you know, with the task cards and bringing in those relevant connections. But what about like just day to day? What other what other strategies um, would you recommend to make math relevant? Um, yeah, so day-to-day things, we talk about the use of manipulatives on a regular basis, um, and there's always a push and pull with with some of my students who are, uh, like I like to tell them that you were good at school, so you have to realize everybody's not going to be good at school, and we have to kind of get them there. Uh, so we talk about the use of manipulatives, and that's where Bola comes in a good bit. We use a lot of, um, there. The uh, there's an article that called, that's called um, 
the fear of the fear of fluency. Uh, and so we talk about those uh, different things and just how to bring math into a different light for students and to allow them to change their disposition. And oftentimes manipulatives can connect, make those connections to where we're, we're doing computation on the board and they're not getting it, but if they can see why we're doing it and the purpose of these steps, then it can allow them to um, build the conceptual understanding that we have. And then oftentimes what I've seen in my, since my time of coming to higher ed is that you know, the kids are getting what they need at the elementary level. Um, and then we're coming to the upper grades and kind of squeezing all of that out of them. Right. And so, you know, granted, students are learning um, multiplication with manipulatives and they're learning the lattice method and learning different ways that, you know, our secondary teachers may not be fully aware of. And um, instead of, you know, adjusting and learning those ways, we're seeing a lot of teachers just saying, okay, do it this way, because this is the way that, you know, you're going to get the answer um, that I'm looking for in the, in the manner that I'm looking for. And so um, kids are learning how to do mental math better. Uh -huh. And we're seeing a lot more students who are coming through the pipeline and they're able to multiply multi-digit numbers mentally because they know how to regroup numbers in their head now, sure. which is coming from the use of manipulatives and the, the foundational math and things like that. And so we need to be able to um, embrace all of those different ways. Now, there's not one way to solve a math problem. There's multiple ways to do those things. And uh, we want to do that. So uh, I think the use of manipulatives in the early ages, the early grades is very important. You can bring them up in third, fourth, and fifth grade so that students are making those connections. Um, let's see what else. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge uh, proponent of just changing the environment. And mm -hmm. oftentimes just call them classroom transformations. And you can see a, a large array of them. You see the teachers who change every inch of their wall. They wrap things up in papers and different things. And or you can see the ones who just change the environment to, to teach differently. And so, you know, I used to do the grocery store in the classroom and the restaurant styles in the classroom and things like that. But I never did the where, you know, I changed the, you know, I laid different carpet down or I did, you know, I didn't do the whole um, complete transformation of the room. Um, so it didn't take as much time. But at the same time, it, it, it still made the same impact. And I think those are very important. So if I if I can give a seven year old child a worksheet and say, hey, here's some coins. Do you have enough of these hypothetical coins to, to purchase this hypothetical pencil? You know, like those things, the kids are you know not really seeing the point. But if I have an opportunity or an environment or a space in the classroom where I can give them some play money or whatever and say, hey, go buy what you what you can afford, like whatever you have, go figure that out. Then I'm allowing them to make a decision as well as doing the math as well. And they're making right. those connections to where they, we can start changing their dispositions about math and um, allowing them to generate positive math identities. Um, and, and I think that's really what we're focusing on right here is just uh, uh, Danny Martin does a really good job of explaining the importance of having a math identity and for all students, especially students of color, um, to where we are uh, allowing them to see themselves as mathematicians and that they too can do it, but we just need to do a little bit more than just the common worksheet or, you know, the lecture style of teaching. I love it. I, I'm a big fan of um, manipulatives as well. And, um, you know, a strong believer that those manipulatives need to be based on students' funds of knowledge, building on uh, Megan Frankie's work of counting collections and letting kids, you know, have a collection of tools or toys that they come in with and count and organize in ways, whether it's grouping them by twos, fives or tens, mm -hmm. and then building in that scaffold based on where kids are at developmentally in that progression of computational fluency but um 
And funny enough, my daughter had to make her own collection this week for the hundredth day of school. Yes. And so she is, I mean, I love her to death. She's, but she's a very girly girl. And so she yeah. wanted to make necklaces for all of her friends. Uh-huh. So we got some beads and strings. And then she, I said, well, it has to be a display, honey. How can we display it? So we actually drew pictures of all of her friends. And they all had a necklace that we made on their picture. I'll have to put a picture up. But, um, you know, it it comes from her, like you were saying. It has to come from the child and where they see relevancy. So for some kids, it might be, you know, Pokemon cards or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, whatever. But my daughter, she likes beads and necklaces and jewelry and that's just where she's at um so all those tools are really helpful because when they go home they can transfer that learning whether it's you know Mm -hmm. thinking about a fraction as um a lego piece or using you know regrouping with different um for playing uh roblox or Fortnite or what have you i know my son Mm -hmm. plays roblox and it's like he's doing ratios because he wants to buy um a thousand roblox for ten dollars i'm like wow Mm -hmm. i didn't even teach you this you're only in the third grade (laughs) it's almost like it's a lot of that's really intuitive too i think there's a lot of intuitive intuitive math that we're not tapping into as math teachers as well Absolutely. And that's, that's a really good point that you bring up. And we talk about all the time with that hundreds today. We were, I was telling my students about the manipulatives and and they actually have to buy a kit for my course. And we use the manipulatives throughout the semester. Um, And so we're using the tens blocks and we're, you know, you, you see the rods and you see the, what they call the flat um, for the 100. And so um, we were telling, I was telling them, I said, you can't just teach them that this rod means 10. You want to teach them that 10 of these units represents this rod, you know, so right. or 100. And they were like, well, they'll get it. They'll get it. And I'm like, no, but sometimes kids have never touched a hundred of anything. And so if you think about what your hundred day with your daughter having a hundred beads, she has an idea that 100 beads is a lot, you know, like it's two hands full, you know, and you're drawing all of these connections so that when they're working with this flat, they have an idea that this 100 actually means something, that they're getting that conceptual understanding that that, that piece of plastic or ours is made of styrofoam, or if it's whatever it's made out of that you're working with, has a representation of 100 units of something. And, and that's really important for, like I said, their conceptual understanding so they can connect it to the procedural understanding that we're trying to get them to. Absolutely, I love the CRA model. Yes. Okay, Natalie, so thanks so much for sharing all of those wonderful strategies to make math relevant. Um, I think a big shift, I at least I see with my teachers, is knowing what to do and how much information to give. Um, should they bite their tongue or should they give them the answer? I know Robert Koplinski talks about the big surprise in math and letting students come to their own conclusions and letting them discover you know, the algorithm or the answer. So tell us your thoughts on the role of the teacher and student in a productive math classroom. Okay. Um, So with that said, I I use a textbook uh, called um, Math Exchanges, and I I don't even want to try to pronounce the last name of the author. It's an amazing book. But one of the pieces that they... um, um, and I don't want to pronounce it simply because I, I would butcher it, not because I don't <laughs> want to give them credit. But um, but know that one of the quotes that's throughout the book is savor the struggle. 
And I absolutely love that quote. And like I said, it's in the math exchange book. She mentioned it all throughout, savor the struggle. Um, and so my students, when I give them problems, uh, they would get frustrated with me. And they were like, you know, this math is too hard. I don't know why you're making us do this when we're only going to be teaching elementary math. And, and I'm like, okay, okay, you're experiencing the struggle. Right. How are you going to savor it? Like, how are you, if you can't do it, how can you expect your students to do it? So we can't. We can't hold back if we're talking about changing our math practices so that they're more rigorous and having our, making our students better thinkers. How are we doing that if we're going to bulk it as adults? You know, we're going to uh, bulk at the idea of that. So really just savoring that instruction and becoming the facilitator of learning. You will be an instructor. It's really hard in a math classroom to always facilitate. At some point, there is some instruction involved that you have to do. Right. Um, but once you get your students to that place where they can start thinking for themselves and connecting the dots based off of all the skills that you've already taught them, you become a facilitator. And you provide those unique opportunities for your students to gain the conceptual understanding through um just different practices and different um, ideas and just different ways of doing things. And so oftentimes I tell my students that if you find yourself uh, referencing a textbook or referencing a worksheet, like those questions are just flatline application questions. What can you add to it to make it a little bit more thought provoking? So that you want them to be pushing themselves a little bit further to say, hey, you know, I can do this or or, hey, that I got that wrong, but it doesn't mean the end of the world. You know, it's, it's one of those things where we need to focus on it a little bit more. Um, and then also in those environments, we allow our students to become facilitators as well. So as they are gaining that knowledge, they're having those debates back and forth. Well, did I do it right or did I do it wrong? Or you should have done it this way. And as they're building those, having those conversations and allowing themselves to make those connections, um, they're, again, thinking. And that's what we want in the math classroom. We don't want them just doing, doing, doing to get to a final answer. We want them problem solving so that no matter what kind of problem problem is in front of them, they have the tools and the abilities to just solve it or work right. towards a solution. Um, and that's what we're shooting for. So, you know, when we're looking at a productive math classroom, those, I think those are the two major roles for teachers, teachers and students mm -hmm. and to be uh, flexible. Because that role is going to shift between the people in the classroom oftentimes and to allow it to happen naturally and, and, and um, just kind of gauge what you're doing. And it doesn't always mean teacher has to be in front of the classroom teaching. It can be where our students are doing their own thinking and learning and growing together. I love it. And you brought up a lot of those standards of mathematical practice from justifying their answer to having a mathematic and thinking about reasonableness and being an active listener and um, discerning, you know, different solutions and possibilities um, and when students are problem solving. And also, yeah, so that's great. So I think as a rule of thumb, looking at those standards can help teachers think about where their students need to grow and go um, because those are the habits of mind we want to build in with our learners. Mm -hmm. Have you done a math debate? That sounds like a lot of fun. No, I haven't. That's one thing that I would have. I would love to like create or work with people to create. Um, I'm, I'm all about. I'm, I'm as creative as I think I can possibly be. But I even get that much more creative around other brains and other minds. We can just toss out ideas and make it even better. So I would love to have something like that. I've, I've watched. Um, math competitions. I'm a huge advocate. Like people go to the spelling bee uh -huh. and that's fine. And all y'all can watch the spelling bee every year, but I'm at that math counts competition <laughs> as if it's the Super Bowl every year for me. It's, it just blows my mind to see these great thinkers and these young thinkers just doing great stuff on stage and, and surrounding all around math. And it just gets me really excited. 
That sounds like fun. I got to try one of those. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. They typically air it online. It streams online when they have the big competitions um, every year. Cool. So, you know, I work with new teachers. You work with new teachers. What advice would you recommend or would you give to new teachers um, when planning math instruction with the Common Core? Um, really just new teachers are my thing. I absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. And when I hear someone say, oh, I'm a first or second year teacher, I just wanted to squeeze them as tight as I possibly can. They are <laughs> special. They're a special group of people who are keeping our, our, our field, our career, everything alive. Like the new, the, the newness that comes in with them every year, they just, they bring so much, um, to the field. Uh, but there's so many unknowns that, you know, I often hear when I'm interviewing, when I was doing my research previously and I would interview a new teacher. They're like, oh, there's so much I didn't know or there's so much you didn't teach me. And and I'm like, well, you do understand I can't teach you a day to day of a school I'm not aware of. You know, like so mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how principals uh, are going to react. You don't know every principal that's out there. So it's really hard to say this is how every school's going to be in a in a program of study. Um but I often tell them, I said, there's the consistencies of cross no matter where you land. And I've taught under six different principles in my time. And every, even though all of the management styles are different, when I went into my classroom, the, the teaching and, and learning and everything was about the same. You know, mm-hmm. it was a different group of kids, but my style just adjusted to the kids that I was serving at that time. So I, the rigor is a word that a lot of students don't take into consideration when they're building their instructional ideas of what they plan for themselves. Um, and so I often tell people to find, take time to find that mentor that works for them. And, you know, mm-hmm. school, the school may assign you a mentor, that's fine, but find that person that speaks to you and the teacher you want to be. Um, you can often find someone who may not support you the way that you want to be supported. That person may be assigned to you, but you could find someone who may not have as much time on their hand, but they can offer you the the positivity that you deserve, the, the positivity that you need, the uplifting that you need, right. and find that person and, and allow yourself to connect with those people so that you feel supported as you're growing and learning in the field. Um, it's It's really important to see your students as humans um, and not to allow any of your, your or, or be mature enough to see your biases so that you're not projecting them towards your students um, and realize that, you know, for me, I, I honestly feel like I have over a thousand babies running around, like all these kids are mine. Once I've, I've spent 180 days with them, they're mine. You know, right. <laughs> so I, I care about their well-being. I care about their success in the future and the decisions that they make and things like that. Um, but I have to actually see them as little people. Um, and, and see that my future is depending on them to pour everything I have into them. Um, and so knowing that children come to me and they're already natural problem solvers, I want to build on that. So even as a new teacher, that's something you can build upon. It doesn't always have to be do this worksheet this way and then, you know, move on to this next class and this next, next lesson. You, you can actually just learn your students, figure out what it is that you want to do. And hopefully that's, you know, quality teaching for them and, and so that they can get great learning from you. Um, but then find what works for them. Right. And, and and that's one thing, you know, this isn't a math example, but I had a teacher who came to us uh, when I was in a, a, one of the administrators in a school. And she came to us from another school and she quickly learned that she was in a different environment. She came from more of a rural setting and she came to a urban setting where at our school. 
And um, the first thing she and she heard, you know, these kids didn't get along well together. They argued like brothers and sisters. And, you know, she heard all these things coming in. And so she says, well, can I teach wonder? And I'm like, and she says it's like a, maybe a six, it might be classified for sixth grade. And um, and she asked for permission and we said, go for it. Mm. I taught this book for the longest time. I, I right. want to say maybe it was like a month and a half went by and she was teaching this book. But when I tell you, this is the same group. I was their administrator for fourth grade. Now they were fifth graders. In fourth grade, they were in and out of my office all the time. They were just out of control most of the time. Like they're really having a lot of issues and, and trying to stay in the classroom and do what was being asked of them. That was really hard for them. But they studied this book. All of the fifth grade studied this book. And when I tell you, I had like no issues from these kids all semester long. Wow. It blew me away. Like, I'm like, who are you now? Like, and so it was so much easier. Like, I normally would have to go to the cafeteria to take kids out. And now I was able to go to the cafeteria and sit down and talk to the kids and, you know, build those relationships because they studied this book and had a different empathy for everybody to where they, instead of picking at one another all the time, they were actually, you know, learning how to accept one another for their differences. And I, you know, you want to contribute it to them studying and learning this book. And, And I love the fact that she took her time with it. And that she opened the school year with it and it changed the whole course of their entire school year. So those are things. And she wasn't a brand new teacher, but she was new to our system, to our school. Um, and I think that really accounts for her coming in and just paying attention to the environment and saying, let's do this. This might help. And because she did, it was we were able to see the differences and see the change. Um, but as math teachers, we have to accept that our students uh will easily dislike math. Mm. It's easy to not like math. You ask me a question, I got it wrong. Ooh, you know, this math is hard. Yeah. I hate it. It's really easy to just stop liking math. Um, so we have to find a way to incorporate some engagement into our lessons so that even though it's hard and they may get it wrong, that they have some wiggle room before they decide that they have this, you know, they, they pick a disposition or they decide that they're going to identify somebody who can't do math. You know, we want to find ways to do that. So, you know, you have teachers who can pick a book that has an award-winning at the end. You've got your science teachers who get the blow-up stuff and they get to be cool. Right. <laughs> so we have to find ways so that that math teacher gets that same stereotype. <laughs> so yeah. the kids want to run into our classroom instead of run away from our classroom. Um, and they want to be there and they want to learn and, and build a positive idea of what math is and what it can offer you as a student now and as an adult in your future. I love it. No, I think that's some great advice. And I, I think I agree with you that it's easy to build in a book, right? And have that re- opportunity to build those relationships because you can have those deep conversations and kids can feel a sense of belonging, but it, it gets a little bit more challenging in a math classroom where it's very tends to be very formulaic and abstract and uh, objective versus subjective. So mm-hmm. we need to step back and, and do those things like you were sharing with the um, – with the with the restaurants and different projects, so whether it's a STEM or a STEAM based project, where the kids can have some ownership, but also show of themselves, you know, show a little bit about who they are and where they come from and what they like to do. I did this project with my students one year. It was about ratios, but they had to design a camping trip because we. We live in a very, um, I want to say, well, there's people go camping out here a lot. <laughs> so we use a lot of digital tools where the kids could actually calculate the gas mileage and how long it would take them. And then they got to do a, a camping list of food. And then we brought in surface area and they got to design their tent based on how many people. And they had to calculate 
the size of their sleeping bag and so on and so forth. So it was a lot of math in there, but then the kids got to present their project, which was a lot of fun, which you talked yeah. about that idea of giving them ownership, but also giving them voice in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So That's yeah, no, great. I think it's great to do those relationship building. Is there other strategies that you've used that can help build those relationships? Yeah, um, I believe like you just gave a great example. I, I recently did a uh, presentation at a conference, so the Equity and Education Conference in South in Columbia, South Carolina, and I worked with um, Rhoda Lattimore, Yashika Rhoda Lattimore, um, who was a graduate student at Clemson, and she offered another activity where she um, had her students do like, an apartment they had or a house if they lived in wherever they wanted to live. They got to design their quarters of where they lived cool. um, using any materials that they had. So they were doing that scale modeling and and designing, and if you know if they wanted to do something brand new, they could do that as well. She didn't really give them parameters to where they couldn't use their own creativity, um, and so it was one of those things where they, they were, the sense of pride, you know, that mm-hmm. was one of those things that she said she she sensed from them as they were creating these things, and you know, she just had different things where you know you had students who didn't agree with everything that you said or didn't like you for some reason, whether it's because you gave them an F because they didn't do well on the test or whatever their 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 issue is. But when we allow them to do to use that same math that they may be frustrated with in a different light, then they can start to see that all of it's not bad. Like we need it for so many different things. So I always encourage people to explore, get to know teachers outside of their schools and, you know, go to conferences and really go to conferences. You know, (laughs) know, don't just go to go to have a a free vacation, but go and, and go to these sessions and see what other teachers are doing. And take those ideas and bring them back home so that you can share them with your students and allow them to see math in a different way and allow them to connect with the math in a way that will allow them to see that there's so much more um, that they can get out of these classes so that they can take them to another level. Um, I tell everyone, like, I'm pushing students in the STEM arena simply because, you know, as I've moved few states over my time. And when I'm looking for, for medical professionals, I can't find the exact ones that I want, you know, in some, in some fields of medicine, I want to be able to sit and talk to a woman who looks just like me and say, Hey, I'm having this issues and she can connect it to, you know, the lifestyle that I have. And it's really hard to find that. And it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, if I can get more students in the STEM and, you know, at least in that atmosphere, then maybe they'll think medicine and maybe they'll think, you know, I'm needed here and they'll be able to have those problem solving skills to, to mm-hmm. get there. And that's really where it comes down to is that it's not always just making A's on the test, but right. actually putting that thinking, being able to think and have those problem skills, um, problem solving skills so that they are able to go to the next level and, and, and do different things and be, you know, change the face of what, you know, different professions look like now. Absolutely. I know um, certainly women and people of color, they're not likely to go into, as you shared, the STEM related fields. Have you come across any research or any anything that you've come across that helps them move in that direction? Or have you found anything that maybe teachers should know about and be aware of? No. And so I am actually, it's good that you asked that. I'm actually writing with Dr. Justin Ballinger, who is at uh, Mercer University in Georgia. And he and I are, we're with our particular focus on just that, just getting STEM into, getting into rural areas, um, students, that uh, schools that are populated with um, 
many students of color so that right. we can actually see this as a, a, a bigger goal versus, you know, just going to school to get school out of the way or going to school because you have to go to school, like giving them a goal and, and allowing them to make connections. So we're doing a lot of work around that. And I'm not saying the research is not out there. It's just in my findings, I haven't been finding anything that's specific to. So that's where we're a little really sure. like focusing on different areas, um, particularly rural areas, because that's where we both grew up from. Um, and, and, and that's been a focus of ours is just knowing that, you know, if, if we had access to different things and we may, may have made different decisions, um, and when we went off to college and those kind of things, and, you know, you just want to see or make sure that all students have access to just different opportunities so that they can get where they need to be. And, and like I said, just change the face of what society looks like right now. We just start making those changes so that everybody can, can get what they need when they're looking for what they're looking for. Yeah, and I think, as you shared, having strong role models, like you shared, people that you identify with, so you know the dream is possible, right? Mm -hmm. A good friend of mine, he's a Latino um, medical doctor and grew up in Nicaragua, you know, one of eight. And I I mean, it's just an amazing story. But that whole idea, what happened to him and his story, I said, well, how did you kind of break through all those barriers in your life? Because you didn't have family that you know, they were doctors and you grew up in impoverished country and you had a lot of barriers. I mean, it is, it's kind of a reality of the situation. And he said he had a mentor when he started um, college that believed in him and opportunities, scholarships, so that, you know, um, when things got difficult in his family, he didn't have to stress about how he was going to pay for things. He could still be able to provide for his family because in his culture, that was one of, you know, it was a big thing that you were able to provide um, for your family members while you were still in school. So he never dropped out because not only did he have access, but he also had programs that were supporting him so that the financial hurdle was, um, wasn't there. So I think Mm -hmm. all of those factors really matter. I know um, at my son's middle school, they're actually having a Latino conference this week at the community college Um, and also encouraging people to kind of not get into that stigma that community colleges are a bad thing too. They provide a lot of access and the fact that you can go to community college and get into a UC or a, you know, public university and not have four years of private education as a financial barrier is huge. It's all of those things that we need to educate our students on. So that everyone has the opportunity to go to, to go to college and be successful and, and to continue on their path, wherever their goals are. And so goal setting is, is so important. Wow. I love that we got to talk about this too, not just math. (laughs) Cause that's uplifting for me. It's so uplifting. Yes, indeed. And you're absolutely right about the mentorship. I I believe that, through mentorship that we can open up these pathways to all different kinds of career choices that, you know, maybe not even the ones we're thinking about right now, but anything. So um, you're absolutely right about that. So I'm, I appreciate that our conversation veered off in this direction because you really put a great, a lot of great information out there. Thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to having you back on the show and learning more about what you're doing. How can our uh, listeners get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter or Facebook? What's your social footprint? Um, I'm a lot more fun on Instagram. So you can follow me at Dr. or D-R underscore P-O-U-G-H on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, I'm learning Twitter. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of it. Like it, it just seems like 
Instagram feels like a nice, warm uh, environment. So I really enjoy being over there. Twitter just seems really short and crass. So I, I kind of tiptoe over there every now and then. But definitely reach out if you have questions or you can email me at drpugh at gmail.com. That's D-R-P-O-U-G-H at gmail.com. Um, and so if you need me, I'm out there. And, and if you just want to talk, collaborate, discuss, we can do any of those things. So just definitely reach out to me. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to collaborating. Hopefully we'll get to connect at a, an upcoming NCTM meeting. Yes, for sure. I look forward to it. I'm, I'm really excited about uh, the future there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll chat soon. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you. Take care, Patricia. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye.